0: Hey, good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, I just want to add my own uh, happy Father's Day. Um, I'm gonna milk this day for all it's worth. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm gonna milk it for. I don't get a whole lot of respect in my household, so this is like the one, <laughs> one day that I get to uh, get a little bit of respect. So I'm gonna milk that. Sure, there's gonna be a whole lot of barbecuing and brunching today. So uh, I'm gonna try to get out of here. I'll try to be as fast as I can. Um, I I am not Curtis Jones, if you're visitors. Uh, Curtis is over at our Cypress campus, so uh, there'd be no mistake that I am not uh, Curtis Jones. Um, If you have your Bibles, uh, please open your Bibles to uh, the book of John, John chapter 8. We're going to jump around. We're going to be in John, and then we're going to jump over to Matthew, and then we're going to come back to John, and then we're going to touch on James a little bit. Um, it is Father's Day today, so I wanted to talk about uh, leaving a legacy um, and talk about uh, who I believe is uh, an underrepresented and, and, and uh, a patriarch who um, is not spoken um, about a lot, um, and that's Joseph, um, the earthly father of uh, Jesus. Can you hear me okay? I mic'd myself, so it was very amateurish the way I did it, so I hope... I hope you guys can hear me. Uh, There's a little bit of echo, but that's probably my fault. Um, John chapter 8, and I'm going to read from verses 2 through 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Bible says this. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down, and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman to him caught in adultery. When they had set her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such a person be stoned. Let me just pause it right here real quick because I just want to add a caveat. This was partially correct. Um, The the law um, had stated um, that if somebody was caught, if people were caught in the act of adultery, uh, that both people needed to be stoned. Uh, But this time they just brought one person. And the Bible says that... Um, They asked him what he said, what do you say? And they did this uh, to test him. It says, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Uh, But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up again and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their own conscience went one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Jesus said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more let's open in a word of prayer father we thank you for this opportunity to uh, look into your word Um, we thank you uh, for all that's written in here for us to look and to reflect and this morning we just ask um, as we study your word together that you may speak to us god Uh, speak to us at our point of need speak to each of us in a special special way we honor you and we love you and we thank you for your word we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name amen Back in 2014, in 2014, uh, the world got a glimpse uh, into ancient Middle Eastern culture. Um, There was a woman in Pakistan who uh, had gotten married to a man that she loved um, and uh, disobeyed her parents, her father's instruction, to get married to somebody uh, that they had arranged a marriage for. And so she went to court uh, to plead her case. Uh, Her father, her brothers, and her male relatives did not appreciate that, so they decided to take matters in their own uh, hands. Uh, We saw images of what happened uh, to her. Uh, They decided right at the court steps, in in, in full view of um, crowds of witnesses, they decided to take justice into their own hands, and they stoned her uh, until she died. It was raw. It was violent. It was archaic, um, and I think it um, uh, shattered really the collective consciousness of uh, all the people who kind of saw those images in the newspapers and on TV. We got a glimpse into the Middle Eastern culture. Uh, that barbaric practice existed in ancient Jewish time as well. Um, the Bible tells us in Acts that uh, Paul was a witness to the stoning of Stephen. Um, and uh, uh, historian Josephus uh, tells us uh, in the antiquities of the Jews that uh, James, who we'll talk about later, the half-brother of Jesus, was cast down by the Pharisees from the highest point of the temple, 170 feet down uh, to the valley below. Uh, and he was stoned there. And somebody came, uh, a woodworker came uh, with his tool and uh, bashed his head in uh, until he died. So, so this practice of stoning people uh, who were caught in the act of adultery or stoning people who were blasphemers Uh, was not uh, uncommon. Um, Well, maybe it was relatively uncommon, but it wasn't unheard of, certainly. Um, But once you got caught, and you got caught in the snares, uh, you can imagine kind of the sheer terror uh, that you would face, the sheer terror that this woman faced as she was drugged from wherever she was caught in the act of adultery by herself without the person she committed adultery with and placed at the feet of Jesus. I can imagine what was said to her and what was done to her and the way she looked and the condition that she was when she arrived at the feet of Jesus. You can imagine the raging crowds, the solitary feeling and the fear, the terror that this woman's facing, and Jesus standing there. Uh, It's an amazing, amazing scene. What I believe is a little bit more amazing than that is that Jesus himself was very familiar with the situation because he had found himself in somewhat of a similar situation uh, about 30 years prior to that. Just north of Jerusalem, where uh, they were at that point in time, um, uh, in a small town called Galilee, in, uh, in a small town called Nazareth in Galilee, population 350 or so, uh, there was this, it, it was a small town, a blue-collar, a culturally insignificant village, uh, nothing t- too much for it, no routes, no cultural centers, no civic or commercial activity. Um, because it was just so poor, the life expectancy of folks there was about 40 to 50 years uh, of age. There was lack of basic resources and the health conditions were were not that good. It was notoriously known for being a poor place uh, because even Nathaniel would exclaim in John chapter one, verses 46, uh, when he he hears that Jesus uh, is the savior, he would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was notorious uh, for being an insignificant place. It was in this insignificant place that two seemingly insignificant people were were about to have what I believe is one of the most significant conversations recorded in our history. Imagine a young teenage girl about 13 to 14 years of age. Her name is Mary. She uh, is betrothed to be married to a gentleman named uh, Joseph. Uh, But before that happens, they're about to have a tough conversation um, we've heard this word betrothal and what basically it means um, in Jewish custom. Um, essentially what happened was um, marriage was really a two-step process. You've probably heard this before, but it bears repeating. Um, the betrothal happened at the beginning of the marriage, of the, the beginning of the uh, the marriage. Um, and it was basically a dedication of the couple to each other in front of friends, family, and witnesses. Uh, Then they'll take a period where they'll separate from each other and go commit themselves. And then they'll come back for the consummation uh, of the marriage. For all intents and purposes, however, uh, the two, once they were betrothed, were committed uh, to this marriage relationship. So it's in this period, after they've been dedicated in front of friends and family, that Mary now has to call Joseph, not on the phone, but in person, and say, hey, I have to have a difficult conversation with you. Uh, She is not certain how he's going to respond. Uh, There's a whole host of responses. And she's very aware of the potential ramifications of the conversation that she's about to have. This is how the conversation goes. She says, Joseph, yes, Mary, I'm pregnant. Really? And the baby is not yours? Well, duh, I figured the baby (laughs) is not mine. You can imagine the flood of emotions that go through both Mary and Joseph. Uh, Mary, there's some apprehension, there's some fear, there's some sadness, there's a whole lot of uncertainty. Uh, In Joseph, there's anger, there's confusion, there's embarrassment, there's disappointment, there's fear, the list goes on and on. Look, Per the law, the next course of action was pretty clear. In the eyes of Joseph, clearly, Mary was an adulterer. And Joseph didn't want any part of that adultery. And because Joseph didn't want any part of adultery, justice per the religious etiquette demanded that an adulterer be put to death by stoning. But watch what happens next. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Let's kind of read a little bit here, see what happens next. The Bible says this, Matthew is the first book of the gospel, is the first book in the New Testament. you get to it say amen Amen. you guys are fast (laughs) this is what it says it says after his mother mary was betrothed to joseph before they came together she was found with child of the holy spirit then joseph her husband being a just man some versions say a righteous man and not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Somebody say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid afraid to take you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken in the, in, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, "Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us." Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded. Somebody say, "Did as the angel of the Lord commanded,", did as the angel of the Lord commanded. and took him his wife, and did not know her till she was brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The Bible tells us that Joseph is a just man or a righteous man, and so would choose to uh, exhibit mercy and plan to divorce her quietly. This, by the way, is the only description of Joseph's character that's given to us in the Bible, that he is just or he was righteous but i would argue that he had more characteristics than that in addition to be righteous in addition to be righteous joseph clearly had the attribute of trustworthiness because joseph was trustworthy enough for god to place his complete confidence in him for God to say, out of all of the men in the history of mankind, this man has what it takes. Joseph has what it takes to entrust the safety and the security of the tender and formative years of the creator, the Messiah himself. Joseph has what it takes to, Im- to influence, to mold the character, the customs, the traditions of the young boy, Jesus. Joseph was God's guy. It was not a mighty warrior and king like David. It wasn't a man of great wisdom and faith like Daniel. It wasn't a single one of the list, a great list, of patriarchs, priests, prophets, and princes, but Joseph. Look, I have a hard time leaving my kids with a babysitter. My wife can tell you that. Sometimes I even try to micromanage her when she has a kid, when she has kids. But can you can you imagine what kind of can you imagine what kind of confidence I'm going to get in trouble for that? When you can you imagine what kind of confidence? You would have to have to place your very self at the mercy of something that you created. God did just that with Joseph. And we can see even from a brief glimpse of Joseph that God had very good reason to do this. I believe there are three attributes more that uh, Joseph um, um, exhibited that had that made Joseph righteous or just in the eyes of God. The first one, Joseph was gracious. Joseph was obedient Joseph was faithful. So Joseph was gracious, he was obedient, and he was faithful. Clearly, Joseph is devastated by the news. But instead of seeking revenge or justice, his first thought is mercy. But this particular circumstance would need a whole lot of mercy. This situation would need God himself to step in and inject by the Holy Spirit grace in a situation that needed so much more than mercy. Grace enough for, for Joseph to accept Mary and the circumstances which, by the way, were not his, of his own doing. Grace to wholeheartedly embrace the role of father to his stepson and to treat Jesus as his own. And by doing just that, Joseph not only spared Mary's life, but he spared the boy Jesus from humiliation and shame. It was Joseph that was the reason behind the people in Luke chapter four twenty two when Jesus came back to start his ministry, it was Joseph who was behind the people saying, is this not Joseph's son? It was because of Joseph when Jesus comes back in Matthew chapter 13 and 55, they, and, and the people say, we know this man. This is the carpenter's son. It was because of Joseph's decision that in John chapter 6, 42, after Jesus says that I am the bread of life, people turn to each other and say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say that he came down from heaven? This was all because of Joseph. Joseph kept the details of Mary's pregnancy to himself, and in the resolving to call the boy his own, Joseph gave the young Jesus legitimacy in the eyes of the community. Amen. Secondly, Joseph obeyed God even though it cost him both professionally and personally. Joseph would sacrifice his own career and well-being and everything that he had to heed without hesitation and without question God's instruction to take everything, uproot himself and his family, and move from Nazareth to Bethlehem to Egypt and then back to Nazareth. Taking Mary as his wife meant that Joseph was assuming the responsibility and the resulting consequences of that decision. See, the angel had very good reason to tell Joseph not to be afraid. Because what Joseph was about to do in accepting Mary's situation was he was about to break the sacred tradition of marriage, and it would all be on Joseph. In everybody's eyes, the pregnancy was now his doing, and he alone was responsible for the consequences and the fallout for that. And boy, was there fallout. The Bible tells us in Luke that Joseph is a descendant of David. Matthew, at the beginning of Matthew, takes great pain in following the lineage of, jo- of David all the way through Joseph. The Bible also tells us in Luke, in the, in, in the story of Jesus' birth, that it was during the pregnancy of, of, of Mary that King uh, uh, Caesar Augustus called a census. And everybody had to return back to their, uh, basically, the town of birth. Bethlehem was known as the city of David, and Joseph was from Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem is where all the descendants and the family members and the friends and everybody that was related to David would live. So it would be chock full of Joseph's family. So Joseph and Mary would be going back to a town that was closely knit and full of relatives where family and community was everything. But something curious happens when Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem. They can't seem to find a place to stay. Nobody is willing to take them in. And so they would have to resolve to staying and eventually giving birth in a stable with animals in a culture that celebrated family and hospitality. Has anybody thought of the reason that that would happen? So the reality is Joseph and Mary no longer had the love and support of their family. They had to go about this alone. The stigma and the stench of their scandalous affair was too far in violation of the cultural norms and traditions and indeed the religious practices. So they were no longer welcome in anybody's household. Not only was Joseph uh, obedient, not only was Joseph trustworthy, but Joseph was also devout in Jewish law and the customs and he also feared God. That's the third principle. In Jewish culture, oral tradition was the main way for passing along history and faith. This was done more so in the home than in the synagogue. If you had some kind of wealth, you could send your kids to the synagogue so that they could be educated. But for the most most part, people who didn't have wealth to send their kids to the synagogue basically had to do it themselves. So one of the roles of the father in the household was really to be a priest of the home. His task was to drive and to set the traditions and the customs that were imitated and then passed through oral tradition to the children's children. And so being 80 miles or so removed from Jerusalem, practicing religious tradition and the requirements of faith required an extra commitment. But despite the obstacles, Joseph ensured that his family kept true to the traditional requirements and customs of their culture. It was Joseph who made sure that Jesus would get circumcised per Jewish custom. It was Joseph who would make sure that they would go and present Jesus for purification. It was Joseph who made sure that they made the annual trek to Jerusalem 80 to 100 miles away for Passover. Luke wants to make sure that this point is not lost to people. And he speaks about the inherited traditions and and customs to the reader. In Luke 4 verse 16, it says, It it talks about, really, Jesus coming back to Nazareth. And Luke has some interesting words. He says where Jesus had been brought up. And Jesus goes to the synagogue. And then he says this about Jesus on the Sabbath day. As was his custom. In other words, Jesus is simply doing what he has been brought up doing in, in his family as per family custom. So Joseph was critical in laying the foundation for religious experience and formation. Not only for Jesus, but we'll see that for all of his children. So... Joseph is gracious, he's obedient, he's, he's faithful. And our expectation, our natural expectation would, that be, it would be that if he would be rewarded, right? Or at least my expectation would be that he would be rewarded. If I was the father of Jesus, if I was given the task to raise God, I would probably try to write a couple books on how to raise God. <laughs> and, and if I don't write a couple books about how to raise God, my expectation is that a couple books are written about me on how good a job I did in raising God. But that doesn't happen with Joseph. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't even have any recorded utterance of Joseph. Only Joseph's thoughts are recorded in the Bible. Not a single word that he says, not a single conversation that he has with Jesus, but only his thoughts. If I was the father of Jesus, I would expect... God to provide for me, right? Because he's, he's given me this task of raising his son. And my expectation would be that God would plant a money tree in my backyard and water it himself. <laughs> but the Bible tells us that that doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, Joseph couldn't even meet the very basic needs of providing shelter for his wife who was about to give birth. And oh, we know that Joseph, by the way, is fairly poor. Because the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2 and verse 22 that when they go to the, to the temple, they give an offering. They give an offering of turtle, turtle doves and pigeons. If you know anything about the hierarchy of offering in Jewish custom, you would know that the wealthy folks, the folks who had resources, would give an offering of a calf, right? The folks who were kind of middle class would give an offering of a lamb, Right? Or a kid, not a child, like a goat kid, right? That's, right? that's a kid, yeah. right? So a lamb and a goat kid. The poor folks, the folks who didn't have the kind of resources that they could to offer a calf or to, to, to offer a sheep or a goat kid, um, had the option of when they got to the temple to be able to purchase for a little bit of money uh, turtle doves and, and, and pigeons to give as an offering. And that's the option really, that Joseph had, because they were not all that wealthy. Well, I understand that. I understand that maybe they weren't wealthy. I understand that maybe nothing was written. But at the very least, I would assume that because Joseph was so faithful, that he was blessed with a long life. That he was he was able to see any grandkids if he had some, by Jesus's other uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, but the Bible tells us that when Jesus is crucified on the cross, Jesus would turn to John. And say, John, this is your mother. And he would turn to Mary and say, Mary, this is your son. And the reason that Jesus would do something like that is because there was no husband for Mary to go back to. There was nobody who was able to take care of Mary. And so Jesus, and by the way, remember Jesus and his brothers didn't really see either. They didn't believe Jesus was the son of God. So there was a a sever in the relationship between Jesus and the rest of his family. Only Mary did. And so, and, and so uh, Jesus had to turn to John and say, look, you take care of her because there's nobody able, who, who's able to take care of her. So, he would, so so John was gracious, Jesus was gracious, he was obedient, Jesus, Joseph was gracious, he was obedient and he was faithful. No acclaim, no riches, no long life. That, that kind of theology, like that to me would seem like a bad deal. Maybe not to you guys, but to me that would seem like a bad deal because my expectation would be That if I'm obedient to God, if I keep my end of the bargain, that I expect immediate and material, tangible rewards for my obedience. I'm sure, since Joseph was human, that he might have felt at some point during his walk that he might have let his family down, or even God let him down. I'm sure Joseph would have liked more than his family, more for his family. Who wouldn't? And I'm sure there were times that Joseph felt inadequate. He felt discouraged. He felt scared, and he felt like he was a failure. Because at the end of the day, we're all human and we all want what's best for our loved ones. Nobody wants to watch helplessly or the loved ones suffer. Nobody wants to raise their kids in poverty. Nobody wants to see their loved ones go through pain. And I'm sure Joseph dealt with these emotions. But the truth of the matter is that Joseph was not a, f- a failure. He was far from it. In fact, Joseph left his children the greatest present a father can ever leave. Greater than any diversified portfolio, any life insurance, any trust fund, Joseph left his children a legacy. And I would argue that there's no greater legacy, father-to-son legacy in the Bible than that of Joseph and Jesus. Greater than Abraham and Isaac. Greater than David and Solomon. Greater than Elijah and his, and his adopted son, Elisha. This was a man that God had given the opportunity the, the heavenly father had given the opportunity to install some of, instill some of himself in the heavenly father. God looked down at Joseph and said, this guy has a quality that I, would, I am willing to give my son to submit at a young age to his authority and to having him instill a sense of direction. I believe that that's the greatest legacy in the, history that, in the, in the, in the documented history of the Bible. And Joseph would prove himself worthy of that honor. Let's go back to the story of the woman. The amazing scene where they bring Jesus, they bring the woman to Jesus' feet, tattered and bruised, scared for her life, not knowing what, what, what's gonna happen to her. And Jesus is, is riding on the ground. And he says to them, let's he who is without sin cast the first stone. They understand what's going on. And so the Bible tells us that they start walking away from the oldest to the youngest. Jesus will stand up and he'll look and say, hey, woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one left to accuse you? And she says, no, there's nobody left to accuse me. And Jesus says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Why would Jesus say such a thing? Well, the first and clear answer is that he is God, right? So God, Jesus has the, uh, the ability to forgive. And that is his creation. And he loves her. And so he, he absolves her of all her sin and her guilt, and he releases her into freedom. But Jesus was also human, and a human with a history who understood very well the paralyzing fear that this woman was feeling because his own mother had felt that in the womb. And like the earthly father who, under the influence of the heavenly father, exhibited mercy and grace, Jesus would turn around and exhibit mercy and grace to this woman how do i know that well because the bible shows us that jesus is not the only person that that joseph would influence turn with me to james the book of james chapter 2 james is in between hebrew and peter and i need to find it while i'm talking here okay here it is okay you guys found james Right. James looks a little bit like the Old Testament book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, only dressed in New Testament language. James's focus is on the practical application of faith, right? Because according to James, faith without works is dead. So James' sole purpose for writing this book is to admonish God's people to start acting like God's people. James, as we know, is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And according to John chapter 7, verse 5, he didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ. He didn't believe Jesus Christ was the Messiah while Jesus was alive because they were brothers, right? So he grows up with this guy, and all of a sudden, at 30 years of age, Jesus turns around and says, yeah, I'm, I'm not really your brother. I am God himself. So James had a hard time reconciling that, just like the rest of his, his siblings, naturally, and so, and so he didn't come to believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that it wasn't until after Jesus had died and, raised, and, and rose from the dead. And he came back and he appeared to his disciples, 500 of, of Jesus' followers. And the Bible in, in 1 Corinthians 5.17 specifically says, and James. So Jesus would personally appear to James. And after Jesus appears to James, then does James decide. Decide, he didn't really have a choice seeing Jesus in glory, that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. And the Bible then shows us in Acts that James later became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So James clearly wasn't directly familiar with his brother's teachings. Everything that James knew about the faith, everything that James knew about tradition, everything that James knew about Yahweh and, and, the, and, and Jew, Jewish culture. Uh, His worldview, his understanding, his interpretation of Old Testament text was heavily influenced by this sense of oral tradition and practices in the household that was passed down to him by his father, Joseph. And so when we find ourselves in James chapter 2, open to James chapter 2 verses 8 to 13, James is making a case for the basis of his theology And what he believes, or he's come to understand, as what authentic faith looks like as it relates to the great commandment. Let's read what it says. Verse 8. James chapter 2 and verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Now watch what James says. For he who said, do not commit adultery, like that woman, also said, do not murder, like the Pharisees. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so the Pharisees understood that, and so they started walking away one by one. So speak, and so do, as those who would be judged by the law of liberty... For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And then James would then basically summarize his whole basis for his understanding of theology in this statement. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes. Clearly, Joseph's fingerprints are all over James' theology. Joseph may have not left him a whole bunch of money, his children a whole bunch of money. His kids may not have lived a life of ease or luxury. In fact, one would die on the cross and the other one would be stoned to death. He never got to, Joseph never got to experience the joys of seeing his kids become, quote, unquote, productive members of society. But Joseph did, in fact, leave them a great treasure. His legacy was etched on their hearts. Mercy must always triumph over judgment. Joseph demonstrated it to Mary. James understood it and he clarified it in the application of the law and Jesus would fulfill it to both of that woman, to both that woman and you and I. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come up. So Jesus looks at her and he says, Go, I don't condemn you. You no longer have to live in fear. You no longer have to feel condemned. You no longer have to feel accused. You can go and walk in liberty. Jesus was doing that as the Heavenly Father, but he was also doing that as. As, 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 as a human being because he had part of the legacy of Joseph that was etched in his heart. James would talk about the same principle. James wasn't there when this happened. But Joseph had such an influence on his children in the area of mercy over judgment that James would base his whole theological argument on what he believes this scripture, the Old Testament scripture says, that mercy must always triumph over judgment. My dad and I, Speaking of legacy, we're having a conversation Um, probably about four years or so, yeah, probably about four years or so, four or five years ago. um, We were joking. After my mom passed away, my dad uh, started coming to the United States just kind of get away, um, you know, once or twice a year. And one of these times, we were just kind of sitting in our backyard, just kind of chit-chatting. We were kind of joking around and talking about kind of growing up and all that stuff. And I reminded my dad of a story, uh, something that actually happened, um, jokingly, jokingly. Um, I, I grew up in, in, in Zambia, in sub-Saharan Africa, and I went to uh, boarding school there, secondary school. Um, and if you know anything about boarding school in sub-Saharan Africa, which I hope you would not, and you should count that as a blessing, um, is that they major in just cooking nasty food. Like, there's nothing worse <laughs> than massly produced, like, third-world, like, unidentifiable food. And, and that's really what we ate. And so what we would do is at the beginning of a semester, we would, you know, you know, start the school year off, you know, bringing supplies from home. We brought, we brought we'd bring sugar, uh, would bring cooking oil and, and there was no tea or anything like that. So we'd make, you know, sugar water. Um, we would burn the sugar um, uh, in a pan until it got crispy and kind of black and dry. And then we would pour hot water on that. And that created, kind of tasted like tea. I don't know if anybody's had it, probably nobody. But it kind of tasted like tea. We would buy corn fritters at the market. We would uh, uh, buy tomatoes and onions and we would uh, have little makeshift uh, stovetops, these really elements that would plug into the wall and we would fry tomatoes and onions uh, and then pour that in. You know whatever it is that they cooked for us, like the beans or the or the cabbage or the type of fish that nobody really knew what was what we were going to eat, but we would use that uh, to create at least some kind of taste for the meal. Um, invariably, in a three months uh, term, three month semester, uh, you would run out of food at the at the at the middle of the uh, of the, somewhere in the middle of the semester. Um, my dad used to be on the board at the high school, um, and he used to come and visit. Um, My dad served uh, the church after he he graduated from grad school. Uh, He served the Brethren in Christ Church in Zambia as a missionary and he was self-funded. We didn't know that growing up that he was self-funded. We didn't realize that we were somewhat poor growing up. Uh, In in hindsight, in hindsight, whatever. Looking back, looking back, uh, English is not my first language, so I probably, uh, looking back, um, some of the things started to make sense. You know, my my mom would cook. um, She wouldn't eat with us. She would wait till we were done eating and she would eat whatever was left over and would ask mom, you know, why aren't you eating? And she'd be like, well, it's because I'm not really hungry. I'm around the food. It's in my nostrils. I don't want to eat. I'm kind of full. But I started to realize it was just because she wanted to make sure that everybody had food before she ate. So I'm at high school. I hear that my dad is on campus that day I'm out of money, and I'm like, oh, man, this is a great opportunity for me to go see my dad. He had visited before, and every so often, he would you know, drop off some money and stuff. This particular time, I went there uh, to the administrative buildings, and my dad was gone. He didn't even bother to say hello. He didn't bother uh, to check on me. Uh, I hadn't talked to him or seen him. Uh, we didn't have any phones or anything like that at that point in time. I hadn't talked to him or seen him for probably at least two months. And I was just crushed, man. Like, how, how did your dad come? He hasn't seen you for eight weeks, and he's, you know, within a couple hundred feet of you because the is right just behind the, the uh, administrative building. He hasn't even bothered to say hello. And so I brought it up to my dad, just kind of jokingly, you know, it's been, you know, 20 years or so, and I brought it up to him, and I said, hey, you remember that time? And, and so we were, we were laughing and joking, and I looked over, and my dad has tears in his eyes. And so... <clears throat> I said, Dad, what's going on? And we were joking five minutes ago, what's going on? And he he looks at me and he says, you know, I remember that day very, very clearly. I've never been able to live down that day. Because I hid from you, because I had nothing to offer you. I didn't have any money for you. You know, that's when he explained to me that when he decided that he wasn't going to pursue a professional career, that he wanted to serve the church, that it was self-funded, and it was a struggle for my parents. And on that day, he was fulfilling his obligation as a board member, but he had to hide from his son. As so we got to talking a little bit, and he said, you know, I, I struggle with this, with this, I struggled with that, but I also struggled with the fact that you know, you're doing much better than I am. It doesn't take a whole lot to do much better than somebody in a third world country. Um, and, I, and I struggle with, you know, what, kind, what am I going to leave for you? You know, like, have I lived a life Fulfilling if I have nothing to offer you? What kind of financial legacy? I don't have a financial legacy to to leave you. But I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, look, I could care less about the financial legacy. I have witnessed a man who's dealt with the violent death of his wife. And that hasn't slowed him down for being faithful. It hasn't slowed him down for being generous. It hasn't slowed him down for being grateful, being thankful and being a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, I don't need any other legacy than that. If I could be half the husband, half the father that you've exhibited, that's all the legacy. And if I can pass down that legacy to my own children, that's all that a son can ever ask for. Look, life may not have dealt you and I a great deck of cards. Some of us might have dealt us all aces, and that's great. But for some of us, Most of us, there's certain things that haven't just turned out the way that we would have liked it. There's certain relationships that haven't turned out. There's certain financial situations that haven't turned out. There's certain things that haven't happened to us in our life that we thought were going to happen. And things just have not turned out the way that we thought they would. But that should not slow us down from what we're called to do. And our call is to leave a legacy of faith for those who are following behind us a trust fund, not financial security. That's great. That's great to leave that for your children. We all strive to do that. Trust me, I'm working hard to do that. But there's one thing that I know, I have an audience of one, and that's God. And my responsibility and my commitment to being a follower of Jesus Christ is to make sure that those that are coming behind me can look at the way that I'm walking and say, I want to emulate that. I want to follow him as he follows Christ. That is the legacy that you and I are called to follow. That is the legacy that you and I are called to to, to give to those that are coming behind us. And my prayer and my hope this morning is that you and I can be a people that desire not to leave a material legacy to those that are coming behind us, but to leave a legacy of faith so that we can look back. And when we stand before Jesus Christ, that he can say to us, not you've made a whole lot of money and you left a great portfolio for your kids. A well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the rich history that's in your word. We thank you for the lives that have been lived in these pages, God, that we can look and emulate a legacy of faith. It is by faith that Abraham and Jacob that all the patriarchs in the Bible, God, were commended to you as righteous. And so we ask, Father, this morning, that by faith and by your grace, God, that you may commend us as righteous. That we may be a people that not only love to love you, but love to exhibit that love to, those, to others that are looking at us for guidance. We love you and we honor you and we thank you. And we ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.